Evening, everybody. Crappy Mondays. Welcome to the News Agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the most political correspondent, Aletha Adu. Good, good evening, Aletha. <laughs> good That's morning. Good. I'm afraid we've got absolutely hit by technical glitches this morning. It was why we're 20 minutes late. Uh, the Kremlin spies had infiltrated Parliament to the extent Aletha couldn't get in the building this morning. And then they screwed up her pulse. And in the meantime, I've put my back out. So I keep sort of leaning a bit and then forgetting about it and then screaming. So if that happens, if I lean and scream, please don't worry about it. It's just my back. Now, this is the People's Pay-Per-View. So please get into the comments. Ask us your questions. The best ones do get the News Agenda mug. If you're listening later on podcast, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to tune in live. And then you too can have a crack at asking questions and getting a mug. So what have we got today? Well, the mirror has splashed on the continuing scandal of P&O sacking a third of its UK staff without notice and just how much the government knew about that in advance. More on that later. But first, we're going to go to Ukraine, where yesterday Russian missiles obliterated a school where 400 people were sheltering. And this comes after they bombed a theatre containing more than a thousand people. Uh, where most are believed to still be dead or dying beneath the rubble because there's no one to pull them out. What caught my eye here, Aletha, and it's actually on the front of the Telegraph today as well, is the rather alarming development that as many as 5,000 Ukrainian civilians who have managed to flee, they found a way out of their besieged cities and have legged it to safety, they have been seized by Russian troops, according to uh, Ukrainian politicians. They've had their passports confiscated and they've been sent to camps within Russia where they're forced to sign papers promising to work for free for two or three years. Now, Letha, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, as far as I can tell, wrongful arrest, illegal detention, kidnapping, theft and slavery at the very least, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And we've now seen a number of senior or cabinet ministers at least, even former prime ministers coming out and calling this a war crime, calling Putin a war criminal. Um, a number of them calling for him to be trialled in a Nuremberg-style war crime. Um, and we might see that soon, hopefully. But it's just been awful. I mean, in the Commons last week, we had four Ukrainian MPs who came from Kyiv um, and essentially highlighting the fact that senior women over the age of 60 were being raped and hung after they were raped. Um, a number of them are being trapped and, you know, hid away. And the ones that, you know, are struggling to cope with such sexual assault are committing suicide. We had uh, Zelensky speaking to US Congress. He spoke to Parliament. He spoke to a number of um, governments across Europe, highlighting the fact that he is struggling to make sense of the fact that is why children are being killed. Now, officials believe around like 2,000 people have now died uh, since Russia first invaded. This is only set to increase. And we must think like, what more are we looking for? What more evidence do we need to start this war trial? It's horrific. Exactly, There's, there seems to be plenty of evidence. I think the difficulty is actually being able to gather it safely at present um but there's enough journalists in the country i'm sure who'll be happy to be able to provide some evidence that they've managed to find there's definite echoes here isn't there of world war Two, but you know ukrainians are supposed to be considered part of the russian family according to putin's own uh you know his own ideology and the way many russians and ukrainians share family ties and so on so it's not quite the same as germans and jews uh 70 years ago 80 years ago um they're not going to react the same way 
to a Ukrainian who turns up and acts as a slave in their home or their factory in the same way that Germans might have reacted to Jewish slaves in the same situation in the Second World War. This is not doesn't seem to be sustainable, even if they're doing this, even if they're seizing Ukrainians and using them as slaves. You know, they speak the same languages as Russian. They're going to tell people what's going on. This is ultimately futile, I would have thought. Ask us your questions, everybody. What do you think about war crimes in Ukraine? What can we do about it? Um, Misha says, who's going to arrest him? Can we even get to him? Well, there is some stuff coming up on that, Misha. It also says uh, on page four and five there that Putin is planning to call up untrained 17-year-olds who are members of this sort of Z youth movement and hurl them at the Ukrainians next, which is going to be a bloodbath on all sides. Uh, And our colleague Chris Hughes has pointed out that the more desperate these hungry and frightened youthful conscripts get, the more ruthless and indiscriminate their attacks become. Remember, they're not very well trained as well. So there are reports of a Russian tank opening fire on a care home, killing 56. There's reports of rape and looting, like you said, Aletha. There's also reports of um, lots of other horrific things going on. There's a bit of story uh, today about a two-year-old with shrapnel in his belly because he's been caught by these attacks. And Anne-Marie says, I wonder which despicable replacement the West have in place to replace him, especially as they helped this evil dictator in the first place. Now, there doesn't seem to be much we can do at the moment that was going on. But on pages six and seven, the Mirror is reporting there may be moves for a coup, as Misha and Anne-Marie were just saying there, to dethrone Putin. So take us through this, Aletha. Is the new guy going to be any better? Well, the man they have in line for this is a man called, well, Alexander Bortnikov, who's said to be the chief of the FSB spy agency in Russia. (laughs) Sorry, I leant back. (laughs) Are you okay? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So he's the head of the FSB, the Russian, the, the successor to the KGB. Yes. And, you know, we've got a number of, Putin's cronies that have been sacked since this invasion because apparently Putin is not very happy about how they've been going on with this operation. He's desperate to try and show Russians that he is not to blame for this ridiculousness and divert the blame from himself, essentially. So there's a small group of Ukrainians desperate to, sorry, Russians desperate to oust Putin. I mean, how soon? I mean, only time will tell. We have no idea. And we do know, obviously, that Russians are not happy with the speed of this invasion. They are very shocked at how slow it's been and how well resistant the Ukrainians have put up a fight against them. So, I mean, that's one thing to remember. And also, um, they would have wanted to control Ukrainian airspace by now. I think they plan to do so within like the first three to four days. And that's obviously not the case. Um, So whether, you know, we'll see this man um, overtake Putin anytime soon, who knows. But we also do know that Zelensky is facing a number of fresh assassination attempts in the meantime. Um, So hopefully, you know, we might see change soon. But also just on um, Alexander, um, it's believed that he might be able to restore the Russian economy at a swifter pace than Putin ever could. Obviously, a number of countries, well, Western nations have now slapped 
really harsh sanctions on Russia, whether it was too slowly implemented. I mean, that's another story. But Russia is certainly feeling the crunch at the moment. And even, you know, we've got their elite complaining at, at the fact that you know, their fancy homes across the West have been seized, their yachts have been seized, they're not able to live their luxury lifestyle in these countries anymore. So people are not very happy. And you know, we'll see whether Bortnikov is installed anytime soon. Yeah, they're the head of a spy agency replacing the former head of a spy agency um, who used lots of secretive and unpleasant methods as a spy and is doing the same as a president. It perhaps seems a little bit suboptimal. Um, this is the person that's not been suggested by the West, Amory. This has been suggested by um, sources within the Kremlin. This apparently is the person that saw some support is coalescing around who knows how good that is. Uh, now, Rich says, good morning, Rich. Could a war crime trial actually start now, even without the presence of Putin and his immediate generals and Kremlin supporters? This is one of the reasons, of course, Aletha, why they may not have moved against him yet, which is if they got rid mm. of him, they all have to end up going to stand trial at the Hague. Yeah. Um, and I think you can actually press charges, but you need to have independent investigators able to go into theatre, don't you, and yeah. actually say... This is what we found. Here are the bodies. Here are the graves. Here are the here is the evidence and the witnesses. Yeah. It's not good enough just to see it on the evening news. You have to be able to get in there, and of course, it's not safe to do that yet. Yeah, and just to add on that, um, I mean, the Russians have been blocking a number of attempts for humanitarian agencies to get into certain parts of Ukraine and just help people, but also to make a proper account, as you said earlier, and how many people have died, what the actual situation is, because we these are all just estimates on how many people have died, you know, how many people are being assaulted and raped and hung. So, you know, it could be a lot worse and yeah. we're trying to get or wait for these corridors to be, you know, installed safely, hopefully. Yeah, and it's the fog of war as well. It's very mm. difficult to know the numbers. If two people are counting the same tank getting blown up, how many yeah. tanks have blown up? Now, Mike says, what's happening with the UK taking Ukrainian refugees? There are reports of a few thousand having been processed and we've offered to take in more than 100,000. I understand that the first one should be arriving this week, but there was some a report over the weekend, I noticed, from someone who's signed up to the government scheme. You So you sign up offering your house, but then you have to tell them of a family you've already got connections with, and that's through a different service. Mm. And it's she described it as being like Tinder. People are putting up a profile, you know, Svetlana, 18, yeah. um, 32, 28, 32, uh, is seeking this kind of accommodation, is happy to work as au pair while I'm there kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you have to sort of swipe left or right, select these people, and then tell the government those are the ones you want. I mean, it seems a strange and quite potentially unpleasant way of going about saying well I don't want these people in my house but I do want those people exactly yeah very unpleasant very worrying as to who will be selected in such a case how what is the sort of criteria that people are going through to decide you know whether they want somebody in their home rightly so it's quite um you know a task to take on somebody you don't know for up to six months and you don't even know if you may be required to take them on for longer or not. Um, but equally, we believe that there will be a number of people left out, um, a number of people who may look different to us that may not be you know, invited in. And it's just a shame that the government re haven't really set up you know, a system whereby people can just sort of automatically say, yes, I want somebody in my home, and they are matched with somebody instead of people being asked to do all of this decision-making. It's a lot on the human... Yeah. It's a lot on the public. It's a lot of responsibility on them, and that's yeah, not very fair. Maybe why there's delays as well. Mm. Because 
it is a complicated process, Mike. Now, Luke says NATO should be made to take action as drones and weapons are going into other countries. Uh, we've ha- heard, of course, about some drone accidentally turning up over Poland airspace. Uh, is this a copycat of Germany in World War II? Um, not quite, Luke, because they're not suggesting the extinction of Ukrainians as they were Jews in World War II and gypsies and homosexuals and communists and other people. Um, but it's certainly got some echoes and we should have perhaps thought of a way this was going to be something we needed to deal with. One of the things the Ukrainians are asking for, Aletha, is to um, the the prime minister who's been interviewed overnight is asking for more advanced air defence systems to basically establish their own no-fly zone with the kind of weapons that will shoot down, not just helicopters, not just satellites, but actually be able to take down ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, which means an entirely different system, uh, and they want those to be supplied by the West now. Is there any chance? I mean, those are, you know, the, the surface-to-air missiles we've been sending them are maybe 30, 50, 100 grand each, but the an advanced missile system is millions of pounds, uh, and it involves setting up this technical and everything else. Is there any chance that we or the US might give them something more advanced to do that? Yeah, as you say, it's very expensive, but those types of systems will be well equipped to defeat the sort of military systems that the Russians are using. Um, So, I mean, it depends on how much people are willing to spend, but moreover, it's quite um, difficult. It's quite a difficult balancing act for different governments to decide, well, is this going to seem like we're escalating this, you know, movement with Ukraine? Is it going to seem like we're trying to amp up how much uh, defence they have and are we going to sort of frustrate the Russians a bit too much and then they're going to sort of escalate and maybe push a button, push a nuclear button or something or start some chemical warfare. It's all very much just trying to do our best to help Ukraine as much as possible without, you know, making Russians even more, um, you know, worried than they are at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Other territories then, I suppose. Um, Now, Martin says, judging by your last comments, do you think exploitation of refugees could become a real problem? We've had lots of very kind, nice people coming forward, Aletha, you know, showing they've got a spare room in Oxfordshire Mm. and they have, you know, lovely bedding kind of thing. We want to have people in there. Thousands, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. How done brilliant. But there's also going to be, if I was a bad person, I would be inclined to think, well, look, I could just sign up and get myself some free human beings here that I haven't had to traffic in myself for once. Mm. And I could make them live in my shed and I could put them to work as whatever. And I could make money out of this. Are we doing checks on the people who are offering their home as well? Um, I don't think uh, enough checks are being done um, and that's arguably why the government have been saying they need more time and why this system has been so slow to roll out and um, they've been claiming they needed to do checks on the people themselves to make sure they weren't you know some sort of Russian spies or they didn't have any any sort of weapons on them or planning to sort of do any attacks in the UK also, yes, there need to be checks on the people offering their homes to make sure that, you know, even their homes are suitable because a number of these people have gone through horrific circumstances just trying to get to safety, even just trying to leave Ukraine has been traumatic enough. Can you imagine, like, leaving your house that's just been bombed to pieces? You've, lo- you've left your husband or your dad or your brother behind because he has to stay and fight. 
and you're just there with some young children or maybe even you're alone and you don't speak any other language apart from Ukrainian, um, it's quite traumatic. So there's going to be a number of people that need a lot of mental health support, a lot of people that may even have sort of health issues that they need help with. Um, and there's a lot that the government needs to consider and it doesn't seem that they're doing so at a fast pace that's required at the moment. It seems quite leisurely and Labour have uh, raised this at a number of occasions and we've only heard from Michael Gove saying, you know, he keeps praising the fact that lots of people have come forward to offer their homes, which is great and that's fantastic for British people. But the government needs to do more to essentially make sure that people are safe on both sides. Exactly. I mean, there's lots of, like you say, lots of concerns about who you're letting in, not about who's going to be having them. Not every person who's going to be offering them home makes you have the best possible motives. Now, Fiona says, who's going to pay for the damage to Ukrainian homes, to Ukraine, build their country back up? It's so sad. Scotland's already taken in children. Why can't England not take on these innocent children? Uh, some have been come across for cancer treatment in the English NHS. They're here already. Um, but there are other things, as we just said, underway. But uh, she raises a good point there. Aletha, about the aid packages that are going to be done. Some aid's already been delivered to Ukraine, millions of pounds worth, and there's, that's going to be, you know, a time when Rishi Sunak has just cut our foreign aid budget, hasn't he? Yeah. He's just, don't need to pay the full 0.7% of our GDP. We can pay less. This is going to be a massive call on every European nation, in fact, most democratic nations' aid budgets, for years to come. We've got to rebuild Mariupol when we get it back, if mm. we get it back. I mean, but we've seen how generous European countries have been. So I don't think, you know, the onus is on them or we need to worry about what those countries are doing. I think we really need to look at what our government is doing. You know, we've got um, a spring statement coming up. I don't think there'll be any changes to our aid spending highlighted in that budget, um, unfortunately. But as you say, there's a lot of rebuilding to do. And, you know, the Ukrainian MPs, oh, there's just a light that's gone off in here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm in the basement. He's turned the satellite your way. Uh, now, Martin says, do you think the Russian people can now see what's going on rather than what's being fed to them by state TV? Do you think this may stabilise Putin enough for someone to make a move? I think, Martin, the answer lies in two facts. The first is that when uh, Putin gave his absolutely bonkers rally in Moscow, the 100,000 people that were present had to be bussed in and they were state employees and some of them were paid. They didn't turn up voluntarily and go, oh, hey, it's Mr. Putin. Let's all go and have a rally with him. Some of it appears to have been pre-recorded as well. And secondly, uh, VPN usage in Russia has gone through the roof. So uh, people are trying to get um, access to the Internet in such a way that the government can't stop them. So the word is definitely spreading. But we do need to move on to another story closer to home this one and as we said on the splash P&O have been given a deadline of 5pm today to explain themselves but seeing as they're going to have to explain themselves to Quasi Quarting and their ultimate boss is Sheikh Maktoum who has a habit of jailing his own daughters when they leave the house they're probably not going to be too bothered about him so what does Quasi actually expect of them Aletha he's just expecting them to say yes we broke the law so what what are you going to do yeah, I mean, this story is just horrific. Um, essentially, companies are required to give a 30 to 45 day notice if you're going to just do something as horrific as P&O did. And they didn't. He's essentially, as you said, given them 10 questions to ask. Um, and we can expect him to sort of implement, well, at least refer them to the HMRC and 
essentially make them pay some fines for what they've done because it's awful. But it's not really enough. I mean, whether he's got something else in his pocket that he's planning to whip out and say, well, this is how we plan to punish PO, we don't know. But we've had a number of unions essentially call for PO to be nationalized, at least while we get to the bottom of why this happened in the first place. And even Labour are calling, well, Labour are highlighting the fact that, you know, Barry Gardner, a shadow, a former shadow minister, had this incredible bill that was, you know, essentially to ban such practices like this, ban all practices to do with fire and rehire. And the government blocked it in October. Now, months down the line, we're seeing this exact same scenario happening en masse. It's awful. And it's not really enough for Chrissy Quarteng to just, you know, say, oh, yeah, you're going to face some fines. How are these 800 people going to get their jobs back? I mean, he needs to answer that and he needs to find some sort of solution to help them get back on track or at least reinstall them back into these jobs. Yeah, so it would be a nice idea, wouldn't it? But they are supposed to be getting enhanced severance, which I suppose is PNO are trying to sort of block any possibility of tribunals because if you pay them more than you're supposed to give them, there isn't really an awful lot that can be done perhaps for by the workers. Now, there's one suggestion that ministers knew about these sackings coming 24 hours earlier. They were told on Wednesday and it happened on Thursday. But, Aletha, uh, I did find out, it occurred to me last week, that when you, you've imported lots of um, foreign agency staff on as little as two quid an hour, mm. um, and if they're on seafarers' visas, in, they're on international routes, they're, they're not really resident in a country, so they, yeah. they don't have to have visas. But on the internal rate routes, so between Scotland and Northern Ireland, if there's foreign workers on there, they need to have a work permit. So has anyone asked the Home Office if they have cleared work permits for these guys? Because they'd have had to, crew, have to, have to, have to pass a cruise worth months in advance en masse if that was the case. Yeah, and that is not the case. I mean, we've had a Labour MP, Carl Turner, highlighting the fact that there are a number of Filipino workers, or even in his constituency, as you said, working on as much as £1.80 per hour. I mean, the minimum wage in the UK is around like, you know, £8.90. That's a remarkable difference. Nobody knows how many of them are being asked to work at such little pay, how long for what these contracts are, if anything. Um, and it's just quite horrific. I mean, I'm just going to go back to the point and the government knew about this 24 hours in advance. They did. Um, the Sunday Times highlighted the memo that showed, you know, that outlined PNO's plans to do so um, at such short notice on a Zoom call. I mean, that wasn't highlighted. And, you know, can you imagine even being sacked by a Zoom? I, mean, I imagine it's happened to a number of people over COVID. But just awful to think that this happened to people in a pre-recorded message, I might add. Um, yes, the government can interject. You can't ask. <laughs> yeah, ask you can't yeah. something I want to say, like you can on Zoom. Oh, no. It's actually shocking. Um, I yeah, I stand amazed by the conduct of PNA. Um, but the government did nothing about this, and they're claiming that oh, it was just a sort of you know. They didn't explain exactly what was going to be happening. They just highlighted the fact that, you know, PNO may be making some staffing changes. Well, they should have been asking questions about this. PNO is such a large company. Um, and I'm sure they, it's not the first they heard about this uh, just on last Wednesday. So, yeah, as I said earlier today in the Commons, Labour are chairing an emergency vote 
calling for people to get some emergency workers' rights. Um, essentially, it'd be around fire and rehire, the bill that Barry Gardner tried to put forward last October. And also, um, you know, call for plans for PNO to be either, you know, nationalised or for them to be sanctioned whilst this investigation is ongoing. Yeah, Whether that yeah. will happen or not, we'll just have to we wait. Do and have, see. Um, we do have a Brexit freedoms bill, which is supposed to be for the kind of improved freedoms that you have in, in Britain post-Brexit. Perhaps that will be a, a good way of putting in some better and stricter uh, employment rights. Uh, which would be handy, wouldn't it? Now, Mike says, Grant Shapps and Quasi Quarteng sent a strongly worded letter to the guy who had left his company chairman months before. So despite the fact that yeah. officials were talking to P&O 24 hours earlier, when the boss actually had to send someone a letter, they didn't have the right one in the Rolodex. Mind boggles. Worrying. What do they do all day, Aletha? What do they it's do? Scary. It's very scary. <sighs> I think also okay. I think you sit there and do wordle. Right. Um there is some good news in the world, everybody. And uh, we've managed to find it for you. Uh, and here it is. <laughs> now you might be forgiven for thinking that COVID's gone away, uh, but the infection rate says that it hasn't, despite the end of, of free testing. And but from today, five million people with vulnerabilities and those who are over 75 are going to be invited for their next booster jab. Now, Anita, I know a lot of people will be quite rightly worried that the government's messaging on, on COVID freedoms will mean there's not going to be as the usual high uptake of these particular vaccines. Mm. But doesn't it show? that the NHS is still thinking about it and looking after us, even if Boris Johnson wants to pretend that it's all gone. Very true, yeah. Um, I'm trying my best to not fill this really happy segment with <laughs> gloomy news. <laughs> COVID is on the rise, I'm sorry to say. It's slowly on the rise. But if we think about this time last year, I mean, we're not in lockdown. People aren't dying in, you know, extremely high rates. Uh, the NHS isn't overwhelmed with COVID patients, and so that is great. And people, we've got around like 90% of the eligible Brit population have had their first jab. That's incredible. I think at least around almost 70% of people have had their third dose. This is the fourth dose that people are being invited to take. Um, and it's, again, we can say that, you know, whilst the government's messaging is, hasn't been perfect, um, it's still great to see that we are slowly learning to live with this. This is now becoming just a routine vaccine that we may just have to take every now and again. And we're OK. We're mingling, which is why COVID is on the rise. People are back in the offices. Pubs and bars are open. Sun is out. You know, people are just enjoying being able to see their loved ones and friends and colleagues, which is great. Um, and also everyone is protected. People are gaining, you know, stronger immunity against COVID. So, yes, we're slowly moving away from COVID, um, it looks like. And this is just another sign of that. Yeah, this time two years ago, of course, it was the very first lockdown. Mm. There were families being separated from each other. Uh, and like this, we had a sort of blazing sunshine and good weather. Um, but there were no planes in the sky. There were no shops open. Uh, then people were doing lots of online deliveries. We were starting to learn about this thing called Zoom. What? Yeah. What? I don't do this. Am I muted? Can no one hear me? Uh, and two years on, only two years, mm. thanks to the vaccines, we're now in a position where this disease is probably not going to kill most of us. Yeah. 
which is a massive change in only two years when consider it's a, it's a worldwide plague it's a pandemic it's obviously killing a lot of people elsewhere who don't have the vaccines and we need to get those vaccinated but in only two years to go from lockdown and terror and it's really bad to this position is not because uh, COVID was was not a risk to start with. It's because of the vaccines that have given us the protection and have given us the survival rates. So if you are invited for your booster, everybody, please don't listen to Boris Johnson. Please go and get it, because it's only by getting your boosters that we continue to preserve this high protection rate that we all have and we all want yeah. and to protect the NHS and so on. If we have a low uptake of this booster and people go, oh, it's over now, I don't need to worry about it anymore. If you have a low uptake, then it comes back with a bang. So let's not do that. It's up to us now to prevent the next lockdown, which is getting your boosters if you're invited. Right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Aletha, for fighting your way through the Russian agents at security <laughs> and getting into Parliament. Uh, you can join us all again next Wednesday for another edition of the News Agenda. Oh, you can catch up on podcasts and Apple and Spotify. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye-bye.